Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. We'll bring you the facts and some timely commentary from policymakers, experts, and grassroots leaders from across the country. This week, we'll compare the problems of the federal budget with problems of putting together a state budget, specifically New Hampshire's budget. Points of comparison include how the budget is put together, where does the money go, how is it raised, what are the institutional restraints, and are there structural issues that affect future policy options? We'll get into all of this and much more with our guest this week, Phil Sletton. Senior Policy Analyst at the New Hampshire Fiscal Policy Institute, an independent nonprofit policy research organization in Concord, New Hampshire, where Phil has worked since 2016. Phil researches New Hampshire's budget and revenue policy, the economy, and financial well-being of the state's residents and health policy. He previously, uh, previously served as a performance auditor for the New Hampshire Office of Legislative Budget Assistant. And, and there he provided analysis to policymakers on a wide range of state agency operations. A New Hampshire native, Phil has a bachelor's degree in political science and policy studies from Grinnell College, located in Grinnell, Iowa, and a master's of public affairs from the University of Wisconsin at Madison. He's a graduate of the uh, Leadership New Hampshire class of 2018. And I should note, he currently serves on the Concord Coalition's New Hampshire Advisory Board. Phil and Tori, welcome back to Facing the Future. Thank you very much, Bob. It's great to be here. Thanks, Bob. Well, uh, here in Washington, this is a big week for the federal budget as the uh, House begins consideration of the congressional fiscal year uh, 2022 uh, budget resolution, which was uh, passed by the Senate earlier this month. And we'll have a lot more to say about that on future programs. But uh, with the federal budget process in full swing, we thought it might be uh, a good idea to remind everyone that states have budgets too. Uh, and, uh, and, and in fact, the choices can be just as difficult and just impactful, um, if not more so, directly on constituents uh, as, as is the federal budget. Uh, so Phil, let's begin by taking a look at how the state budget is, is assembled in New Hampshire. Um, it's kind of, you know, the, what's going on in Washington, it's kind of late in the year to be doing a budget resolution, but timing doesn't really matter that much, <laughs> so, so much with the federal budget. So, you know, who's responsible uh, and what's the general timeline? Sure, absolutely. So uh, the timing does matter quite a bit when it comes to uh, New Hampshire's state budget. 
Um, in New Hampshire, we have a two-year state budget. Most states do a budget annually, based on what I understand, but we do them once every two years. Um, and we put together in New Hampshire, we put together a new state budget in every odd uh, numbered year. Uh, so this is 2021, uh, the state budget process uh, in New Hampshire wrapped up at the end of June ahead of the beginning of the new fiscal year on July 1st. Our state fiscal year is a July 1st fiscal year as opposed to the, the federal government's October 1st fiscal year. Um, the most recent state budget was about um, $13.6 billion over that two-year period. And, and I know that's a small amount of money relative to what uh, folks are often talking about in DC, but in New Hampshire, $13.6 billion goes a lot of way and is, is most but not all state spending. And I can talk about that in a little bit, but the um, relative to timing, um, what typically happens in the state budget process in New Hampshire is basically a five phase process. And uh, because it's a two year state budget, the state agencies actually start putting together their budget requests uh, in the middle of the budget, so uh, about a year before the new state budget you, is due to pass or typically passes. And then the uh, state agencies will submit those requests to the governor. The governor will put together a budget proposal. That budget proposal will then go to the House. The House Finance Committee is usually the, is the committee that puts together the, um, uh, the, state, the state budget proposal that's been put forward by the House. The uh, House Ways and Means Committee will put together the revenue estimates. And, uh, and then the budget will, if it passes the House, will go on to the Senate. The Senate will uh, make its own changes in its own finance committee and make its own revenue projections in its Ways and Means Committee. And then the, uh, the um, final step in the legislative process, in the, in the typical process, is that it goes to a committee of conference between uh, where members of both of the legislative bodies put together a final version that has to pass both houses uh, or both chambers um, in full and then uh, avoid a gubernatorial veto. Um, uh, it, can, it can have a signature or veto or a lack of signature or veto can mean different things at different times. Uh, that all has to happen before July 1st of each odd numbered year uh, for the next two year state budget to be in place. You know, uh, that sounds like a textbook uh, uh, il illustration of what's supposed to happen. And you could have a similar textbook illustration of what's supposed to happen in the federal budget, except it never does. And there are no consequences in the federal budget. You know, they go over deadlines and there are no penalties for missing deadlines. And then we have shutdowns at the end of the year. Uh, and they do things called continuing resolutions until they can get their appropriations bill worked out. But it sounds like in, in New Hampshire, the state budget, things it can't just roll over like that. Is that is that right? Yeah, the, the process. So we do have uh, occasionally things that are, are um, patches that are like continuing resolutions. So, um, for example, in uh, both 2015 and 2019, uh, the governor or different governors at those times uh, vetoed the budget that came out of the legislature. In uh, both those cases, there was a, a form of a continuing resolution passed, a resolution that basically extended the uh, prior budget for uh, another uh, six month and three month period um, in each of those cases. Um, so yes, there are sometimes parts of the process that, uh, that are a little different. Um, in uh, 2017, the House actually didn't pass the budget proposal that came out of the House Finance Committee. And there had been some changes to the rules around how amendments are made that made it difficult to pass on the floor or amend on the floor in time. So the House actually didn't pass a budget. What that meant is that the Senate picked up the uh, two House bills that had already passed and amended the governor's budget proposal to those House bills and then started working from that point. So 
it is uh, it is not a process without hiccups and alterations that happen uh, from cycle to cycle, uh, but it is a a relatively regular process and that every two years the state budget is put together. Um, and even when it doesn't happen exactly on the right timeline, it happens relatively close to it. Well, I have a quick question for you about the power of the executive branch in proposing a budget. Um, you know, here, uh, you know, for example, the federal government, the president proposes a, bu a budget, but Congress has full authority to make changes and send those to the president for his approval. At the state level, Virginia kind of operates the same way where I live, but my experience has been in state government with the Maryland uh, General Assembly and there, uh, the governor submits a budget, and the only thing the legislator, legislature can do is make cuts. They can't add money anywhere. So that gives the, the governor some pretty um, muscular authority when it comes to proposing a budget for the upcoming fiscal year. What kind of executive authority does the governor have in New Hampshire in terms of proposing a budget? Right, so the executive authority of the governor in New Hampshire is uh, generally much more limited than it is in a lot of other states. Um, indeed, the governor even has a separate elected body called an executive council, which is kind of like a board of directors that has to um, approve all state expenditures and contracts and appointees, um, uh, well, expenditures over a certain threshold, I should say. So there's even another elected body that it constrains the governor's powers in, in that way. But um, when it comes to the budget itself, uh, the governor can uh, can submit a budget proposal and the legislature, if they wanted to, could completely ignore it. They could put together their own budget proposal entirely. Um, and as you pointed out, Tori, that is quite different than some other states. Uh, the governor's budget proposal in terms of the line by line items, often a lot of those line items are preserved, but it does allow for quite a bit more flexibility if state agencies come to the legislature and say, look, we have this new need. Um, so could you could you fund it with maybe enhanced revenue projections uh, that, you know, because the, the legislature gets a little bit more information about what revenues look like over the course of the, the four or five months that they're looking at the state budget. Uh, there's also instances where, for example, um, Medicaid enrollment may be, uh, may be projected to either in this, in the case of New Hampshire, not grow as robustly or go down in the future, um, hopefully as we emerge from the pandemic. So that's something that the legislature changes then uh, from the governor's proposal. But um, the legislature uh, could completely rewrite the budget. They often take a lot of the framework that the governor has put together uh, in terms of the line by line detail items from the agency budget requests that the governor's office has combed through and preserves those through the process. Uh, but they certainly don't have to. They could rewrite it entirely. Yeah, I, uh, that is interesting. You mentioned enhanced revenue estimates. Um, now, well, uh, that raises a, a couple of questions, but but one of them really is, you know, in, in Washington, we have the Congressional Budget Office, which has to score bills and they, they do a baseline, they do an updated baseline. Uh, is there anything similar to uh, this, the CBO in, in New Hampshire? Uh, so there is an agency similar to the CBO, which is called the Office of Legislative Budget Assistant, but they do not do their own revenue projections per se. Um, the revenue projections are in the actually under the authority of um, uh, there are five different sets of revenue projections uh, across the budget process and the final authority sits with the committee of conference uh, between the House and the Senate to really put together those final revenue estimates. So um, the governor's office provides revenue estimates early on to the state agencies. Um, in the uh, tail end of an even numbered year, uh, or in the summer of an even numbered year, I should say. 
the agencies build their budgets. And then um, there's an election in between because we only have two year terms for governors uh, in New Hampshire. So that means that uh, the governor's office could be a different governor's office with different personnel who produce then their own set of revenue estimates in February. And then the House Ways and Means Committee will put together their set of revenue estimates. The Senate Ways and Means Committee will put together theirs, usually in March and May, respectively. And then in June, the Committee of Conference is uh, could be an entirely different set of legislators. There's no guarantee that it pulls from the Ways and Means Committee. So it could be five different sets of revenue estimates from five completely different sets of folks uh, over the course of the budget process. But those final ones in the Committee of Conference uh, uh, revenue estimation uh, part um, are typically what ends up in the state budget. If there is a veto, then the process can change again. Well, um, let's get into uh, what's actually in the budget or, um, uh, and, 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 and let's just say at the beginning that there, there is, the, the New Hampshire budget is supposed to balance. Uh, is is that, uh, Correct, yes. and and we'll get in operating budget, right? Yeah, the, the operating, operating budget, not the capital budget, right? Yeah. Yeah. And we can get into that. We'll get into that a little bit later in the in the structural impediments section. <laughs> but first, let's. Where does the money go in the budget? What is what does New Hampshire spend its money on? Right, and um, and I do want to pick up briefly on Tori's point is that not all state expenditures are in the state budget. Um, there's the the state operating budget is most state operating expenditures. There's also a six-year capital budget that's updated every two years. There's a 10-year transportation improvement plan. And uh, the legislature can pass bills separately that have separate pieces of appropriations that are then not necessarily accounted for um, in the state budget itself, even if they're part of the calculus around the state budget process and whether the state budget balances or not. And yes, you're right, Bob, New Hampshire is one of the states that uh, is statutorily in New Hampshire required to pass a balanced budget plan um, for, again, as Tori pointed out, its operating budget. So, uh, so the biggest category of state expenditures in the state budget in New Hampshire is health and social services, and it's more than 40% of the state budget. Um, and it includes a significant amount of federal funds, for example, um, Medicaid federal funds uh, are, are significant uh, in New Hampshire state budget like they are in all states. And uh, Medicaid covers currently about 220,000 people in New Hampshire, and that's gone up pretty significantly during the pandemic. It's really been a critical um, support for residents who lost work during the pandemic. And more than half of all Medicaid funds are, are federal funds. Uh, Medicaid is about a little more than a $2 billion program in New Hampshire. And as I noted, the, uh, the state budget itself, which is most, but not all state expenditures, is about $6.5 billion a year. So Medicaid is a really significant portion of that. Um, but there are other services that are Medicaid uh, related or not um, in uh, health and social services, which include uh, mental and behavioral health services, substance use disorder treatment, food assistance, um, some of the state's housing and homeless assistance, uh, child protection, uh, care for veterans and for older adults in long-term care facilities, um, care for people with developmental disabilities, lots of programs that are in this category. Uh, that um, help lift up Granite Staters in need. Um, Medicaid and Medicare are significant portions of the federal budget as well. So that's part of the uh, part of the calculus on the federal level. 
The next largest piece, though, um, at the state level, that's not as big a piece on the federal level, to my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is education. Um, education funding, particularly local public education funding, the state's obligations to fund local public education are a significant piece of the budget in New Hampshire. About, about a quarter of uh, budget expenditures go to education-related uh, spending and a, a very significant part of that, about two thirds of that goes to fund local public education. Bill, I want to uh, just break in there now to take our first break, and we'll pick up with that uh, right after this. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are talking with Phil Sletton, Senior Policy Analyst at the New Hampshire Fiscal Policy Institute, and we're making some comparisons of putting together the New Hampshire state budget and the federal budget. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are talking with Phil Sletton, Senior Policy Analyst at the New Hampshire Fiscal Policy Institute, answering the question, where does New Hampshire spend its money? And you talked about some of the healthcare programs and, and education, and I had to interrupt you there. So if you can kind of remember where you were and pick it up from there. Sure, absolutely. Well, um, uh, health, health and social services is uh, again about 44%. Education funding is uh, a little under a quarter, about 23, 24%. Uh, so those, those two together comprise two thirds of uh, state budget expenditures in New Hampshire. Um, and, uh, the, and part of the education funding as well goes to, it's not just local public education, but it's also operations of the Department of Education and public higher education gets a relatively small amount of funding uh, in New Hampshire. New Hampshire usually ranks um, toward the bottom uh, when it comes to uh, state funding for a state as a state share of all funding for local public education and almost always ranks at the bottom, depending on what metric you're looking at for um, aid to public higher education. Uh, but it's still a significant portion of the budget in New Hampshire. And my expectation would be in other states, it's an even larger portion of the budget. Um, there's a uh, the next uh, areas of state expenditure are all quite a bit smaller since those two categories account for two thirds. Um, an, uh, a, another broad category called the administration of justice and public protection is about 12% of expenditures. Um, transportation funding, so our Department of Transportation is about 10% of state expenditures. Um, although there's a significant amount of spending that's outside um, the, the state's operating budget as well um, around capital projects and other revenue streams, some of which are, are uh, very heavily reliant on the federal government. Um, and then resource protection development, uh, which is both economic development and environmental protection. Um, it's a little over 5%. And then uh, general government, the last category that includes things like our uh, treasury department and our secretary of state, that's about 5% as well. And that rounds out the, uh, the expenditures of the state budget. Um, a little bit, uh, it's confusing to me, things that are like on budget and off budget. I mean, things, things that count and things that don't count. In the, you know, we have, the, the federal budget has social security, which is technically off budget and the postal service is technically off budget. And, and there's a line in the budget that says these numbers are off budget. Um, but um, it sounds to me like there are a lot of different pots of money <laughs> in, in New Hampshire that fund various things that aren't necessarily considered as part of quote unquote, the budget. I mean, is there some estimate for how much is, is part of the operating budget versus things that are not covered by the operating budget? 
Yeah, so if you're trying to estimate how much money does the state spend in a given year, then you have to uh, sort of decide where the state government ends and things that are outside of the state government begin. Um, so if you're counting it on the revenue side, for example, do you count all the revenue that is uh, tuition revenue of students paying to attend the University of New Hampshire, right? If you start drawing that big a circle, then you're talking about eight or nine billion dollars in revenue compared to a uh, six and a half billion dollar a year budget, right? But maybe we don't count tuition revenue because the uh, the university system is a separate body politic and corporate is the term that they use. So if you don't count that and go in a little bit further, well, then you're talking about maybe more like a $7 billion um, a year revenue picture. And when I say revenue, I'm talking about all revenue sources. So federal grants, uh, non-tax revenue and tax revenue. So the... Um, uh, the, there's, there's not the estimates would, it would have to be an array of estimates, Bob, to answer your questions as to, uh, as to where you are drawing the line as to what is included in the state government and not, but a significant amount of expenditures uh, are authorized separately that are clearly part of state programs, but are authorized in separate pieces of legislation. Uh, the most um, profound example uh, is uh, the expanded Medicaid program under the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. Um, uh, that program, which is designed to provide health coverage for people with low incomes and limited means, uh, that program is authorized outside of our state budget in New Hampshire. It is not a lot of state money in the grand scheme of things, but uh, because it's a 90% federal match, it's a significant amount of federal money. So depending on the year you're looking at, it's three or $400 million a year that is, uh, again, mostly federal and entirely outside of the state budget and serves a lot of people, especially during the pandemic. It's, it's a, that money goes to you know, services for people in New Hampshire, but is authorized separately and independently of the state budget. Um, every, actually every, it usually has two year authorizations. Right now we're in a five year authorization, but those were set up to be in even numbered years. So if they wanted to wrap it in, they would have been changing their authorization cycle and thus they haven't. So that's an example of a key program that's not accounted for uh, in the state budget directly. Well, let's, uh, let's pivot to revenues. We've been talking about what New Hampshire spends its money on. Where does New Hampshire get its money? Hey, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, so uh, about 30% of the state budget, at the pre-pandemic, I should say, to state budget, uh, is funded by federal funds. So federal, the the if you were to collect all the federal grants and put them in one line item, that would be far and away the largest revenue source, a single revenue source for the state. Um, and these funds, you know, usually come to New Hampshire associated with specific programs. So whether it's Medicaid or transportation or water pollution mitigation and water infrastructure funding, um, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program or food stamp benefits, those are uh, those are typically you know some of the bigger programs associated with federal funding coming to the state. We do uh, levy uh, taxes in New Hampshire. Uh, our largest tax revenue source is the business profits tax, which is like a typical uh, state corporate income tax. Um, that's usually a relatively small revenue source in other states compared to some of their other revenue sources. It is our largest revenue source here in New Hampshire. Uh, we also have a statewide education property tax, which uh, is a complex creature. It doesn't actually collect money that goes to the state. All the money is raised and retained locally, but it is the next largest state tax. Uh, there's a meals and rentals tax, which is basically a narrow-based sales tax on uh, largely on restaurant meals, but also on hotel rooms and rental cars in the state. Um, there's a Medicaid enhancement tax, another complicated piece. It's a, a provider tax levied on hospitals that's used to match Medicaid funds. 
Um, we also have a business enterprise tax, which is uh, not like business taxes in most other states. It's based on compensation, interests, and dividends paid or accrued and at a relatively low rate. Uh, we have a tobacco tax, mostly a tax on packs of cigarettes, um, a motor fuels tax, which is mostly a tax on gasoline, but also diesel fuel, uh, a real estate transfer tax, and a tax on insurance premiums, uh, and an interest and dividends tax on interest dividends and distribution income uh, that goes to individuals and, and certain entities. Uh, we also have a liquor commission, which operates state liquor stores, and a lottery commission, which sells lottery tickets. And we toll uh, folks on uh, 89 miles of turnpike in the state that are owned by the Bureau of Turnpike. So that's a rundown of the largest sources. It's a pretty wide variety. It's also a pretty um, fractured picture, right? There are, uh, there are many different revenue sources that are part of the pie. There aren't um, very many large dominant ones, if you will. A question for you about revenues. Um, it's amazing to me that you've managed to avoid, that New Hampshire's managed to avoid a broad-based income tax and a broad-based sales tax. You look at most other states, you know, here in Virginia, Maryland, uh, Maryland even has a local income tax on top of their state income tax. So they've got a sales tax, they've got a state income tax, they've got a local income tax, they've got, you know, um, how is it that New Hampshire has managed to avoid the, as it, it's, those two broad categories of taxation? Is it because your, your, your budget is relatively small relative to the population that you serve, or are you just doing a better job of exporting your tax base to other people? Yeah, so I think that the, the key relationship there in terms of New Hampshire not raising as much money at the state level is that it's raising more money at the local level. Um, so it's not even, a, there, there are some revenue sources that we have that are, uh, that are designed more in the you know, exporting the tax base to people who are visiting the state, for example. That is, that is certainly part of the, part of the uh, decision making around these revenue sources at the state level. But if you look at just state tax revenue collected per capita, then we are quite low. But if you look at state and local tax revenue collected per capita, then we're much closer to the middle of the pack. Um, and that's because uh, we have relatively high, uh, indeed among the highest on a per capita basis, uh, property taxes in New Hampshire in terms of dollars collected per person. Um, and that means that local governments play a very significant role in service provision um, and raising money for the services that they provide as opposed to relying on transfers from the state. And it also means that where you live in New Hampshire uh, can have a big impact on your uh, your individual tax payments that you owe to state and local governments combined because um, local governments have very different tax bases and, uh, and these, in terms of how much property do they have within their borders to tax and, uh, and also very different, uh, very different local economies, very different household incomes. So if you were to, if you were to break down three major tax revenue sources that a lot of states have, uh, broad-based income, broad-based sales and property taxes, then New Hampshire is heavily dependent on the property tax side. And that's a big part of the local picture. Um, it's not as big a part of the state picture. If you look at uh, New Hampshire's uh, state taxes raised versus local taxes raised overall, about 60% of the revenue raised uh, in taxes in those two categories are local taxes. And almost all of that is property taxes. Um, whereas if you look at the nation as a whole, those are about reversed. Usually states are a little bit more than a majority, like 58% or something along those lines um, of taxes raised, whereas locals are the balance. So, so that's, uh, that, that's part of New Hampshire's revenue picture and how the state decides to share with local governments is, is uh, the, the most direct answer to that question. 
We're going to have to take our second break here. Uh, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are talking with Phil Sletton, Senior Policy Analyst at the New Hampshire Fiscal Policy Institute, about some comparisons between the New Hampshire state budget and the federal budget. We'll be right back after the. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I'm talking with Tori Gorman and uh, Phil Sletton of the New Hampshire uh, Fiscal Policy Institute. And we're making some comparisons between the sausage making at the state level and the sausage making on the, uh, the federal level. Phil, we've talked about um, where uh, New Hampshire spends its money and how it raises its money. Uh, I know on the federal level, we at the Concord Coalition are always talking about structural changes, long-term structural changes to the federal budget. And I'm wondering if there are some similar issues with the uh, New Hampshire state budget. Yeah, so I think the closest parallel uh, between what we see at the, at the federal level is some of the structural challenges at the federal level and what we have at the state level in New Hampshire um, are around long-term demographics and how those interact with the state's support for programs and the state's revenue streams. So New Hampshire is a, a somewhat older state in terms of its demographics, in terms of its population. It's about the second or third highest in the country by median age, depending on which recent year of census survey data you're looking at. Um, and it's a relatively rural state. So as the population ages and to the extent the population ages in place, um, people are aging in their homes. Um, and as retirees maybe decide to move here as well, um, service needs may be higher and may be compounded by transportation challenges as well because we are a relatively rural state. So um, the questions are, uh, as we look into decades into the future, can our state revenue system keep up with the increased service needs? Uh, does the economy slow as the population ages as well? Um, what happens with healthcare and caregiving costs, which are really necessary services in, in many, and in many cases, the state pays for at least part of them, um, and uh, particularly for those who would be unable to afford the care themselves. So does the revenue system keep up with that? Um, and also, how well do our uh, revenue sources reflect the broader economy? Local governments are very reliant on property taxes, and the state's uh, sources are reliant on national corporate profits and people going out to eat and people buying cigarettes and liquor and lottery tickets. Uh, some of our revenue sources are more durable than others as the economy changes. We've seen some pretty um, substantial changes in some of our revenue sources. Um, there was one called the Communication Services Tax that uh, that is a tax that's levied on two-way services and is heavily reliant on people buying landline phones and uh, landline hmm. phone services. And uh, that uh, that obviously there's been some erosion in that over time as more people have switched to cell phones. And uh, there was a policy change that made that service explicitly exclude all revenue all, all revenue from internet services. And that revenue source has been cut in half in the last 10 years. It used to be a really significant one, and now it's not so much anymore. Uh, so what are some of the changes in the economy that impact our revenue, our, our relatively diverse array of revenue sources in that way? There are some that are likely to be more resilient than others, and that's, that's a structural challenge going forward. So Phil, I wanted to, to, to move the conversation over a bit, a little bit to talk about the coronavirus and how the pandemic and specifically the, the federal government's aid to states and how that affected the New Hampshire 
state budget. Um, there were, I think in total, six pieces of emergency legislation dealing with the coronavirus that Congress passed over the last 18 months, two of which were very, very significant. You had the, the $1.7 trillion CARES Act, which was in March of 2020. And then you had the American Recovery, or excuse me, the American Rescue Act, that was about $1.9 trillion that they passed earlier this year, soon after President Biden was inaugurated into office. So with those, and, that, and the, both of those packages had huge chunks of money for states in there. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how the CARES Act money and how the ARPA money, the Rescue Plan Act money, affected uh, New Hampshire state finances. Yeah, and Tori, I'm really glad you asked about both of those separately as well, because we in New Hampshire have had really different experiences with those, um, and and they were in very different contexts. So when the when the CARES Act passed, uh, New Hampshire was looking, and like many other states, was looking at a forecast for a really significant revenue shortfall. Um, in in the at the same time when needs for services were were increasing dramatically. Uh, and a lot of those models were based on, you know, based on unemployment as to what revenue would look like based on unemployment rates mm -hmm. and, uh, and projected unemployment rates. And they were all fairly dire at that point. Um, so the CARES Act uh, provided New Hampshire about one and a quarter, $1.25 billion in flexible funds uh, and provided other funding as well. But in terms of the flexible funds that the state had uh, more discretion over how to deploy, um, those uh, funds had to be used relatively quickly. They had to be out the door by the end of December of 2020. So New Hampshire was in an interesting situation where existing programs uh, that couldn't be supported by those flexible dollars, those flexible dollars couldn't be used to offset revenue shortfalls, despite the revenue shortfall that was projected. And uh, so existing programs, so which were providing really core services, were under budget pressure. But then new programs had to be stood up relatively quickly with these new dollars uh, and to deploy these funds to help people effectively, right? Um, and both both were obviously critical. It was just a very different set of budget pressures on, on different sides of the ledger. And a lot of these Flexible Cares Act uh, funds went to aid to businesses you know, through grants in many cases, um, particularly small businesses as well as self-employed individuals, some of those businesses that may have um, not had as direct access to some of the federal assistance. And there were also significant funds for stipends for healthcare workers and support for healthcare providers, uh, aid to nonprofits that were providing services, um, to higher education institutions and to local public schools, uh, broadband expansion, childcare, rental assistance, uh, and support for, the, uh, support for the Unemployment Compensation Trust Fund, which had been, uh, been paying out quite a few dollars as well. Um, so these, and these funds, the process was quite different because these funds were deployed under the governor's emergency authority. So the legislature provided some input, but did not have to pass the plans, was not a decision-making authority there. That's very different than what we're seeing with the American Rescue Plan Act funds now. Um, the American Rescue Plan Act deployed a significant amount of funds um, to local governments in New Hampshire, as well as to the state government. So the state received close to a billion dollars um, and local governments in New Hampshire close to another half billion dollars. And unlike the CARES Act, those funds went directly to, or in, many, in most cases, went directly to local governments, not in all cases. Mm -hmm. And um, the pandemic is still with us, obviously, but the state is running budget surpluses now. Uh, the state of uh, the state of emergency is over. So right now, it's we're going through the normal process or what the usual process would be for deploying federal grants, which are state agencies making requests to 
um, what's called the Joint Legislative Fiscal Committee in New Hampshire, which is a group of legislators that basically manage the budget between enactments of each budget. Uh, so it's a much slower process now, and there's a much longer timeline. These funds have to be obligated by the end of 2024 and spent by the end of 2026. So as opposed to really hurrying to stand up programs to get aid to people quickly, now there's a lot more uh, strategic planning, um, or the potential anyway, for a lot more strategic planning around how these funds could be deployed. Um, some states have done it differently. So for example, uh, in Maine, my understanding is the governor released a plan for a billion dollars in funds, um, and the legislature, I believe, voted on that plan or at least aspects of it. Um, whereas in New Hampshire so far, it's been state agencies requesting the assistance for the use of these funds for certain projects. So about 19% has been allocated so far. Um, and a quarter has been allocated for um, water infrastructure, about 20% for building upgrades of what's been allocated so far, 16% for IT upgrades, 12% um, for parks and recreation facility upgrades. So there's, there's a lot of flexibility and we're seeing sort of the, the initial easy to identify needs being, being uh, uh, addressed first. But uh, as we go forward, there's still going to be a significant amount of funds left, especially in the context of New Hampshire. And there's a lot of opportunity to really provide a lot of supports to key areas of the economy that have been affected by the pandemic and to people who have suffered through the pandemic as well. Um, but so we haven't seen a lot of that so far. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. follow up question to that. It sounds like, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, you know, a lot of this money that's coming to the states, one time only, you know, windfalls, right? right. And it, but it sounds like New Hampshire is doing a pretty good job of matching up the one-time windfall with with one-time expenses, right? You're not trying to to stand up an entirely new program based on one-time source of, of federal revenues, which obviously gets you into a structural deficit kind of problem, right? When you when when your your incoming doesn't match your outgoing over the length of the of the program, but it sounds like New Hampshire is doing a good job of matching one-time uh, revenue from the federal government with one-time expenditures. Is that am I am I hearing you correctly? Yes, uh, policymakers have been quite intentional on that front. So in my mind, there are three sort of categories of expenditures that they could be using these dollars on. One are those one-time, particularly one-time capital expenditures. Um, another is, uh, the second one would be uh, temporary programs or programs that are designed to be temporary and maybe have some evaluation components. So if you wanted to continue them afterwards, uh, then you could say, all right, let's see how well this program worked. And then the third category being ongoing programs that don't necessarily have an end date. And those I think are the furthest from where policymakers are thinking right now. Um, I think they're, um, I think the, that first category of infrastructure was, you know, the, at, at this point, because it's been early in the process, they're deploying funds in that category first. You were you had mentioned a, a, few, a little bit ago about the fact that New Hampshire was running a surplus. Do you know what the the plans are for that surplus? Given that it's probably, as we talked about, you know, a, a temporary or a one time only surplus, are there plans to remit that money back to taxpayers? Is it? Or do you think it'll, it'll be spent on one time only needs? What What are your thoughts about what New Hampshire is going to do with with that surplus? And how big is that surplus? Right. So interestingly, the the surplus um, uh, and it's it's a significant amount of money that the state ended with uh, in terms of um, the uh, the state budget. I believe it, I believe it was about a 280. We still have preliminary numbers only, but about a 280 million dollar surplus in the general and education trust funds, which are where the most flexible dollars are uh, at the end of the budget biennium. Um, policymakers have actually projected that revenues will continue to be high. Um, some revenue sources will uh, fade from their 
um, sort of the pandemic era heights, um, the real estate transfer tax has done very well in New Hampshire, but we are also running out of housing. So there's only so many more houses for people to buy and they're not being constructed relatively uh, quite quickly. Um, the tobacco tax, there's also some a suspicion that that will be in long-term decline as well based on the legislature's revenue forecast. But uh, they project that business tax revenues um, from both the business profits and business enterprise taxes will continue to be strong. So um, while there uh, while there were certainly some uh, changes to tax policy, some really significant changes to tax policy, um, both in a one-time and an ongoing fashion um, that would reduce revenue for the state, uh, uh, that includes both a one-time $100 million tax reduction in the statewide education property tax and phasing out the interest and dividends tax over time entirely, which is, that was about 5% of the general education trust fund revenue combined. So a big tax revenue source for the state. Um, those are were part of the state budget, but the state budget did grow as well. The state budget went from a, about $3.2 uh, billion in the, for the last two year period to $3.6 billion for this current uh, period. And that was in large part supported by increased uh, uh, higher revenue projections and surplus that was carried forward. Uh, Phil, I just want to wrap up our conversation by uh, looking back on uh, an exercise that you did with uh, Chase Hageman, the, the former host of this uh, program, the founding host. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we do a budget exercise where people go through and make choices about the federal budget and and we combine that with something you would come up with where people make choices about the New Hampshire state budget. And, um, you know, what are your general observations about that? Anything that uh, stands out when you go through that choice making exercise with the public? Yeah, one of the things that um, I know I try to emphasize when uh, when uh, working side by side with members of the Concord Coalition on on this uh, um, uh, on educating folks around these budget choices is that interaction between the state and federal budget, right? If the federal budget choices can affect uh, the state budget uh, quite dramatically, since it's 30% of state expenditures, um, and, uh, and then there's a connection to local budgets as well, because the state government responds to what might happen with federal uh, revenue or with its own tax revenue sources, uh, and how much they are sharing, then how much revenue they are then sharing with local governments, um, which again in New Hampshire play a big role in terms of the uh, provision of services and raising money for those services. Uh, one of the key differences uh, when you're looking at the federal budget choices versus the state budget choices is that, as, uh, as Tori pointed out, our operating budget has to balance. And uh, that means that in that budget exercise, uh, the participants start with a balanced budget. Uh, and they have options for adding services, they have options to reduce services, they have options to add revenue and options to reduce revenue. And usually, or typically what I've seen in terms of what happens is people have seen a need in their community and they see a policy option that addresses that or that tries to address that. And they then want to add that policy option to the budget, but then they, they then need to raise revenue for it or have some spending offset. Uh, and that, you know, that does, kick off a lot of discussion uh, because there are in many ways more limited options, right? There's only a set number of options. Uh, and, uh, and unlike the federal exercise, since you must end with a balanced budget, there's not the ability to sort of make a trade-off and say, oh, well, we didn't decrease the deficit maybe as much as we wanted to. You have to end with a balance or a surplus. Uh, and I think that does change the conversation a little bit as well. 
Um, and, uh, and whereas with the with the federal piece, if you've reduced the deficit and done the things that you wanted to, then then there's there's positives on both sides, if you will. Still a deficit. Um, the state, I don't give them that option in the state exercise. They have to balance. <laughs> well, that's uh, that's certainly an interesting comparison, uh, and uh, it's quite clear that the federal budget does not need to balance, and the um, people make uh, great use of that to do all sorts of things. But we'll <laughs> we'll get into that with a uh, in another conversation. Uh, that's all we have time for this week. Uh, so I want to thank our guest Phil Sletton of the New Hampshire Fiscal Policy Institute for his insights into the budgetary sausage making at the state level in New Hampshire. And thanks as well to Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman for joining me in today's discussion. This is your host, Bob Bixby. I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future. <laughs>